When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Difficult to keep the line between the past and the present. Do you believe that someone out of the past can enter and take possession of a living being? We may be through with the past, but the past is not through with us. Welcome back to The Next Picture Show, a movie of the week podcast devoted to a classic film and the way it shaped our thoughts on a recent release. I'm Genevieve Kosky, here again with Keith Phipps, Scott Tobias, Tasha Robinson. After deconstructing the comic brilliance of This Is Spinal Tap in the first half of this episode, today we're bringing in the new pop star, Never Stop Never Stopping, a direct descendant of Spinal Tap with all the timely hallmarks of a 2016 comedy. Written by musical comedy trio The Lonely Island, a.k.a. Andy Samberg, Yorma Takone, and Akiva Schaefer, and co-directed by Takone and Schaefer, Popstar is a similarly collaborative, music-laced effort from a group of simpatico comic minds. While the members of The Lonely Island have taken on film projects together and separately before, most notably the nascent cult films Hot Rod and MacGruber, Popstar is the purest distillation of the formula that's made The Lonely Island the biggest thing in music parody this side of Weird Al Yankovic. Take one part pop-rap braggadocio, add two parts mundane absurdity, and multiply all that by monster hooks sung by big-name music stars. Popstar then cannily applies this formula to the recent strain of MTV-produced concert doc feature films, specifically Justin Bieber, Never Say Never, for a modern update of the mockumentary mold set by This Is Spinal Tap. The pop star of the film's title is Sandberg's Connor For Real, a loose amalgam of Justin's Bieber and Timberlake, Kanye West, and Michael Jackson in his prime. Connor made his name as part of the Style Boys, a Beastie Boys-esque rap group formed with his childhood friends Owen and Lawrence, played by Takone and Schaefer. But Connor broke off on his own when mega stardom beckoned. Popstar introduces us to Connor at the height of his powers, on the brink of his sophomore album's release and its attendant world tour. Anyone who's seen Spinal Tap should be able to guess where things go from there. Okay, where to start? Ever since I was born, I loved music. As soon as I could, I started a band. Right away, we knew he was something special. Immediately, I said, man, this guy right here, he's going to make it big. Connor for real is actually saving the record industry. Everybody's just waiting to see, like, what he does next. Connor's hot. You tell me you didn't see him and say, yo, he's the star. All right, so Scott and Tasha, I saw Popstar with you, so I have a pretty good idea of where you guys stand. But Keith saw it separately from us, so I want to start with him. What did you think of Popstar? I laughed and laughed and laughed. Yeah, no, I, I came in expecting expecting to see a, a pretty funny movie, and, and I was uh, I exceeded my expectations. It was a very smart, you know, send up of, of what's uh, what's going on in music docs now, just in the way, in much the way this Spinal Tap was for 1982, and uh, those guys are just super winning. Watching it. 
I knew I was watching a film I'd be watching um, many times in the future, I think. Yeah, I've already seen it a second time. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, America is going to hold off on yeah, it for now right? and then catch it later <laughs> as they do with every single one of these types of movies. I, you know, we, we talked about it coming out of the film, Scott, and I said that I, I thought this would be the one to kind of break the mold of these guys' movies and, and be a hit, but I was clearly very, very wrong. And I'm, I don't understand why that is. Maybe... Well, according to... You know, business news that I've read about the, the the film. According to business, it was like Universal kind of like planned it this way. It was kind of like a again the the Pee Wee Herman thing. I meant to do that, uh, where they were going to lightly promote it and not invest a lot of money, both in the production of the film and the marketing of the film theatrically, in the hope and expectation that the film would uh, collect on the back end uh, mm. as it kind of found its, uh, a certain cult appreciation which I think it will find just be, just based on the fact that we all enjoy it and, be, and since we enjoy it it's going to stand the test of time yes. um, but well, uh, we're, I mean we're personally ordering everybody to go watch it yeah so I mean we're we're the beginning of the snowball we are, we're, 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 the, are. we're the grit in the oyster that's going to become the pearl if you don't yeah. like pop star we can't be friends no we can't and I, <laughs> I, I appreciated that it was just time to make this movie for the Lonely Island, to make an mm-hmm. actual straight up Lonely Island movie, you know, and give it everything that they have because uh, they've been doing this since they've been together since two thousand one, I think, as a, as a performing troupe. They've 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 had what three albums before four. this. This is this would be their this fourth. would be their fourth. Yes. This would be their fourth. Uh, they've had many, you know, SNL uh, digital shorts that have gone viral, um, and it was just time to do it, and they did it. And they did it right. Uh, I think it's a really uh, funny movie that that um, it, you know expands on what they do um, without seeming st- too strained or um, testing our patience. I mean, I know that's the that's that's always the test with these things. When whenever when you have a you know a, a sketch comedy troupe trying to make a, a movie, it's always like, well, will this one joke? Can you stretch the joke? Can you can, can that work? And it didn't work, especially something that's Saturday Night Live derived, like yeah, or musical, or something like uh, you look at the Tenacious D movie, for example, uh, which has an unbelievably brilliant opening, and then it just can't follow through on it at all. And this is one that I think, I think I laughed at it. You know, found found something to laugh at in every scene. I think it helps too that that it has some emotional underpinning to it as well. There is a drama between these characters, not unlike Spinal Tap, where mm-hmm. where. Uh, Everyone has to to kind of drift apart and drift back together, and and uh, I think it, that plays out really convincingly. As silly as this movie is, and as it, much as sort of the characters beg not to be taken seriously, I think you take them seriously enough to 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 have a stake in in their happiness. I think it's actually it's really significant that the the directors assume that their audience is not even going to have the patience in this film to sit through a full Lonely Island music video. All of the songs in this film are, and many of them are really, really funny, but they're all truncated. Like even uh, Finest Girl, which I have uh, touted on Twitter and listened to many, many times. You can find the full length uncensored video online and you really need to watch the uncensored version. But even within the context of the film, when it plays hilariously, they only play about two thirds of the, the song. They assume that your patience might be tried by like literally the length of a pop song. And that really speaks to how fast moving and how tight this movie is. Well, and also like both the movie and the songs know to get in and get out before the joke gets too old. Like Lonely Island songs rarely go above three minutes. And I think it's notable that both Popstar and Spinal Tap get in and out in under 90 minutes. You know, like they don't stretch the joke too far. And that's really important, I think, when you're dealing with 
kind of quote unquote stupid humor. I've, re- I've read and watched a lot of the interviews that the Lonely Island did around this movie, um, in part because of the hilarious thing they did with uh, with Jimmy Fallon. <laughs> yeah. They just stuck fake Jimmy Fallon quotes in like every TV interview that they did. But one of the things they consistently talk about is having watched a lot of comedy movies themselves and knowing how tedious they can get when you spend too much time on a joke. So they were just, they were so committed to, you know, not joke, joke, but joke, 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 joke. And it's hard to recover from that kind of comedy. Like you feel like you're in the ring with a boxing master and you're just getting hit, 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 hit. And it amps the the humor up so much. I This movie was so unexpected for me. Like I, I was not sure like whether I was going to consistently love it. And it was one of those films where I couldn't close my mouth because I'd be laughing and then gaping and then laughing and then gaping. I was thrilled that I enjoyed this movie as much as I did because like I was in the can for this movie going in. Like I was on uh, film spotting at their, uh, for their end of the year show last year. And we were talking about our predictions for uh, in film for this year. And I brought up this film when it was still called Connor for real, not pop star. And it's something I was very excited for because I love the Lonely Island. I love their albums. And, but I was worried because it, their humor seemed like something that could become very stupid in not a good way when stretched out over feature film length. And I'm really happy that that is not the case here. Like it is stupid, but in a very funny laugh out loud way. I think it helps also they give you a lot of different types of gags. There's a mm-hmm. cornucopia of, of, of humor in here, whether it's a funny song or seal showing up. Yeah, or, lots of um, unexpected, yeah. well, maybe not that unexpected, but celebrity appearances, or, incongruous celebrity experience. Right. Or you know, Did any of you have uh, see Zoolander 2? Am I the only? Yes. Who saw? Because yes, I mean, this, this is like a, a this is deal. such a lesson in like how to have all of those celebrity cameos and make each one of them count. Uh, whereas you know with Zoolander two, it's like what? Where's the joke? You just have you just have recognizable celebrities showing up, and there's no there's no humor there at all. There's no why are they there? It is. It's actually really remarkable to me how much. This movie resembles Zoolander 2 in all of the different kinds of things it's trying to do and how much better it does all of them. I mean, you also have the like the rise and fall arc of the clueless, oblivious star who's having problems connecting with the people around him and needs to like build old relationships back up again. Like all of these beats are the same beats. And I mean, in the end, one of the things that just comes down to for me is Ben Stiller's comedy is this this comedy of broadness. It's so huge and and blank and over the top. And I feel like he's just a giant charisma void at the middle of that that this film. Whereas uh, Zoolander two, what in the oh, middle Zoolander of Zoolander two, two specifically. Yeah. Whereas Andy Samberg is just I I feel like he's just so much more of a winning presence, even playing a character that's like meant to be equally large and broad and meant to draw audience disapproval he's still just he's more charismatic he's more in the character he's more in the moment there's no meanness or cynicism to like even when he's playing a very stupid character it comes across as like goofy and loving rather than mocking i think i mean the word silly is probably the he's a goofball the defining (laughs) word of this of this whole venture i mean if you and if you talk about the difference, I guess, between uh, pop star and this is Spinal Tap. I think you could you could talk about this is Spinal Tap as being, you know, a satire of the music business, and I don't think this is much more of a parody. This is much more of a almost airplane style. Let's just bombard the audience with jokes. We'll have jokes just coming from every possible corner, and hopefully the the hit rate will be 
high enough uh, to sustain the movie, which is hard, a hard thing to do. But I think the movie, uh, you know, achieves that. But as you were saying, there's also t- so many different types of humor. You know, there is that there's the parody of the music industry. There's like mocking this absurdist character. There's there's satire. There's banter there's recognition parody there's nostalgia parody Uh, there's just there's so many different angles that they hit this from and that's one of the things that really keeps it moving whereas like zoolander 2 kind of feels feels like the same i mean there's just an effort here i mean i think really they are you know this is this is their shot to make a true lonely island movie um and this is a group that's been doing this for 15 years i mean i think they're you really feel uh, the commitment to making it good, uh, and that is not uh, Zoolander two. That commitment is not there, uh, and it and it kills uh, kills the movie. And it, it just you know, and again, the way the way if you talk about the way celebrities are used is just so clever. I mean, the, Justin Timberlake, for example, as uh, as uh, you know, a guy who basically is their chef, who who is very proud of the the way the different ways he he cuts carrots for them. Uh, you Julian, know, he, he tries to he tries to sing, but is shut down. I just it's a very clever use of uh that character and also a nice wink to his story and how it's you know reflected in the, the story of connor for real or at least partially connected to the story for connor for real the as themselves cameos are quite good too mariah, mariah carey oh, yeah. uh, talking about how she relates to the song about how humble you know being so humble <laughs> uh ringo star ringo star is in this movie yeah. I, I loved i loved usher's excitement over doing the the donkey roll mm, the do- right, right yes <laughs> the donkey roll uh. I love the donkey roll. <laughs> I can see why it was a big hit. And, and I like that they like they mentioned the donkey roll many times, but they hold off. You don't get to see no. the donkey roll like in full until that that segment on the fa- dance on Fallon. Is so great too. It's so good. Oh my gosh! Uh, so I wanted I wanted to ask you a question, Genevieve, because <gasps> back in the day, uh, I used to assign you. <laughs> <laughs> to see films such as uh, the Justin Bieber uh, uh, yes. music documentary, and you would come back with uh, informed reviews. So I, I was curious to ask. You mean you, you haven't caught up on them since then? <laughs> I have not. So I want to, uh, you know, I want to talk. About, how is the style, I guess, of of pop star reflective of the style of this movie? Yeah, it's. I mean, the whole idea of kind of a concert doc. I mean, obviously Spinal Tap has um, performance footage, but the kind of MTV strain of concert doc is very much, uh, its energy is divided between kind of a you are there concert experience and, you know, quote unquote, personal Mm -hmm. moments with the star. And there's lots of, you know, social media overlays. You know, I I know in the in the first Justin Bieber documentary, there's a lot of just like uh, tweets popping up on screen and, you know, showing him interacting with his fans that way. And that's something the pop star does uh, quite a bit. And but it's it's more just the way that the concert footage is presented as a spectacle in and of itself that really brought that out. Plus, just Connor is a very Bieber-esque character. In many ways, <laughs> uh, dumb. Yes, yes. <laughs> and uh, tat- a lot. Of, he's got a lot of tattoos. Have, have yes. a lot of- but yeah, I'm sure if uh, you know Universal had allowed the budget, they would have made those uh, concert scenes in 3D because the, those movies always make the concert scenes in 3D and you know shoot lasers and bubbles at you because that's kind of the idea of them is like putting you in the front row well it's stagecraft wise they're they're probably pretty similar too yeah. though because yeah i mean justin bieber does so many quick changes <laughs> the magic oh, tricks <laughs> oh yeah I, for, I, I just i'm just now remembering the scene the scene of him 
<laughs> with all of his uh, you know, th- quick this, changes. I do appreciate that, that Popstar is an equal opportunity uh, nudity delivery device. I would say <laughs> perhaps, you know, uh, inequal in the opposite direction is what you yeah. want. <laughs> yeah, probably. Mostly yeah. because the Sandberg spends a significant amount of time without clothing on and uh, like I'm not sure many other people in the movie do. Well, there's, well, there's, there's the one. fan outside the limo. Oh. Oh. Well, okay, what well, there's that? That's that's who's very, Judd Apatow, by the way. That's very walk hard. Well, by that's the, way. the that's the room. I thought that was confirmed. Mm. Uh, why do why why am I even talking about this? But, yeah, <laughs> that is a gag directly out of Walk Hard. Yeah. That's just you know oh, here's right. here's the here's the male genitals that are going to just sit on the screen for a long period. Yeah, and that and, the, and I gotta say that the, the walk the Walk Hard is I would give the yes. uh, advantage in this particular. Uh, case, but 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 but, but the the window sliding down <laughs> the the little like friction that that, that was a that nice touch. Yeah. So. Well, so is the like he he does gamely sign the penis <laughs> that is presented to him presented to him for signature, you know, but he does so like. <laughs> But holding the pen by the tip as though getting like a pen's length distance will somehow make a difference and like holding it up with Kleenex with that, that hilarious like Andy Samberg like wrinkled schnauzer face that he does. While we're talking about the style, I thought one of the things we should maybe address is the the specific style of humor both here and, and in Spinal Tap. I think there's a very specific strain of humor that runs through like the Lonely Islands projects in general, just as there's a very specific strain of humor that runs through Spinal Tap and like through it into the movies that Christopher Guest made in the mockumentary form. And I think it's really interesting sort of tracking their projects over time, how you can see like this this very strong sensibility that lives in in both groups of people that work together over and over and over. In the Lonely Islands case, there's the like the the sense of like the over the top comedy that's based very strongly in undercutting and humiliating themselves. Mm. And like I recently watched Hot Rod because I was wondering is it as hilarious as Popstar and just nobody's told me and I really disliked that movie, but I did see in it that they are kind of trying to do some of the same thing in terms of creating kind of pompous characters who believe in themselves even though they maybe shouldn't. And then if you look at Christopher Guest's movies, you see that same Spinal Tap sense of humor over and over. That's the the very straight-faced people who take themselves very seriously and don't crack a smile as they're saying ridiculous things. And who have these like elaborate dialogues that are improv that are built up into kind of bigger and bigger weirdness while always maintaining that that sense of solemnity about them. I just I think it's interesting that you can see in both cases a very specific style of humor carried forward through all of these different projects. Let's back up and say uh, I like Hot Rod. Yeah, Why? It's uneven, but it makes me laugh. It's got the training montage. It's got Chris Parnell talking about AM radio. It's the the uh, <laughs> talking about the cool the, beans, the futureness, the, the future of AM radio. Uh, uh, I don't know. I, mean, I I like it. I mean, for me, it just kind of typified that idea of taking the one joke and running way, way, way too far with it and making it tedious. And for me, the big difference between Popstar and Hot Rod, apart from pacing, is that Popstar is about arrogant characters being ridiculous, whereas Hot Rod is so much about kind of pathetic, sad, small characters who it just it becomes very complicated with the sympathies because you're not looking up at them and laughing at where they've put themselves. You're looking down at them and trying not to feel sorry for them. But both of them have this absurdist element to them that I like. I mean, I think the one 
the big, I guess, virally scene from from uh, Hot Rod is that whole Cool Beans thing, which is just so stupid and silly and, and works, I, I think, pretty wonderfully in the film. And I think there's that willingness to, you know, throw the brakes on, on, on a movie if necessary to just go for some absurd gag that the audience doesn't expect. Uh, and there's, I think there are examples in Popstar of that as well, where you're not really moving things forward you're just kind of stopping to do something very strange like have a bunch of wolves <laughs> and seal and uh, the wolves are agitated by seal's voice and he's got it's just a very that's a very strange thing to think of to do um and uh it, it lends their work an unexpected absurdist charm yeah i think one of the most interesting things about that kind of that comparison in Christopher Guest style versus Lonely Island style is Lonely Island is all about fully and energetically committing to the bit. Whereas Christopher Guest's style, I mean, I know it's a Rob Reiner movie, but Christopher Guest picked up that style and ran with it for all the improv films he did. And the style there is so much about noodling in circles around the bit, like intellectually exploring it in really funny ways. We could just do, do you remember this funny bit over and over again? But we haven't even talked about the brilliance of, of the uh, TMZ parody with, with Will. <laughs> oh, how do we? Which yes. could not. For me, it's probably the funniest gags in the movie. The, all, the all. ever-growing water yes. bottle. A sippy water bottles and, and just it's just so <laughs> when will arnett's doing this thing where he's like this blustery confident character who is barely hiding that he's falling apart inside it's just the quintessential will arnett character and it's so beautifully done in this movie will arnett was my favorite part of hot rod i will say okay. that all right and it's such a plausible psychological profile for him mm. for all of those tmz people mm-hmm. who must be just whose souls are just rotting <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, it's such a vicious parody of of TMZ style journalism and kind of the the toxic smugness of it, and that's I mean that's what makes it the the visual gag of the the ever growing and multiplying like giant cups that they're all sipping out of is an example of that like Lonely Island like super absurdity, but like the the whole piece in and of itself is just such a a brutal takedown of that particular style of like sneery journalism and it's it's really fun to watch well i am going to focus in a little bit on our topics keith let's start with you uh you want to talk about something that i spoke a little bit about in the keynote but is kind of uh quintessential to both of these films appeal i think yeah i, I want I, ta- I want to talk about the editing which we did already cover but let me let me start by telling you a story um <laughs> i used to work at a video store in madison wisconsin called Four Star Video Heaven, which is still around. Shout out to Four Star Video Heaven. If you're in Madison, Wisconsin, it's a great place to rent a movie. Uh, But they used to have, this is back in the VHS era, and they they used to get all these videos from a a somewhat shady source called Video Search of Miami. Oh, yeah, I think I'd... Right, they'd come next to these plain wrappers with the same font on it, and it it would be like out-of-print movies, um, quasi-pornographic European stuff from the 70s. and, and uh, But one thing they had was um, the bootleg version of this is spinal tap the four and a half hour version Ooh. and i remember it's like on two videotapes I, i'd take it home it's like this is it this is like the uncut china white of uh, of uh, this is spinal tap and uh i love this is spinal tap what could be better than four and a half hours of it and it is 
dull. I mean, here you will just, I mean, you think just watching these guys riff and improv or whatever is going to be, you're going to be laughing like you wouldn't believe, but it is, it doesn't work. It makes you, I mean, Spinal, this is Spinal Tap is 82 minutes long and it is not a wasted minute in it. And it is, makes you appreciate what a job it was to cut it down from all those hours of footage. And, you know, the, the various DVDs have had, deleted scenes on them and they're fun to watch i like watching them and actually explain some things too the cold sore bit mm-hmm. throughout the film oh, yeah. gets explained by them hooking up with a, f- a female band that they all sleep with and they all catch you know oh, i read that it was like a lip piercing thing no, that had no, gotten no, infected I mean, it's, thing, it's, yeah. in one of those deleted scenes mm-hmm. there they actually comment on the fact that have you ever gotten one of these and like the fact that in the live movie, there's a point where they all have cold sores. Like it's. I like that it's on. just there. Like yeah. yeah, it's. I mean, it's it's good stuff. I mean, Bruno Kirby in his underwear singing Frank Sinatra songs. You get you get <laughs> clips from from uh, uh, Harry Shear acting in Italian like a giallo thriller or whatever. But it doesn't. None of it would improve the film, which is perfect as it is. And like even down to where they cut. We talked about this in Lonely Island a little bit. But where they cut in the film itself, like I think it's funny that give me some money gets gets cut off mid drum fill i mean just that edit <laughs> makes me laugh the way the um um listen to the flower people gets cut off like mid guitar solo uh it just you not you don't you don't overstay your welcome it's it's just beautifully done it is uh uh makes me appreciate that and i, I was thinking about that in relation to pop star which I can't imagine. It doesn't seem to me to be as improv or certainly, well, a few things are as improv as this is Spinal Tap, right. but just the amount of set building and, and the various locations they had to go to. But it is tight, especially for a Judd Apatow executive produced movie. It, it is, <laughs> it's, a, it's a tight film. I imagine the editing process happens earlier when they probably, because there's such a, as, as I said before, there's such a, a multitude of types of gags and gags upon gags upon gags. I imagine that instead of hours of, of footage, there's probably pages of disc, well, virtual pages of discarded drafts of, of funny material here. But I mean, to me, though, both of them are the products of people that know how to be economical with, with what they're doing. And, and, I, and I think that's an underappreciated art. Oh, absolutely. One of my, probably my favorite Christopher Guest movies is uh, A Mighty Wind, which Mm -hmm. is the satire of uh, folk music industry. And there is a scene in that where Bob Balaban is haranguing Michael Hitchcock about stagecraft about the fact that they're they're it's right before the big show and he's standing on stage saying you know i can uh, why are there lights hanging there that doesn't seem safe and michael hitchcock gets more and more agitated and finally bob balaban is like i can see a wire and hitchcock just reaches over and and paps him on the top of the head dope slaps him basically and the the scene cuts instantly and if you listen to the commentary they say that that is because the entire crew burst out laughing. It was an improv <laughs> moment. No, no, nobody knew he was going to do it. He didn't know he was going to do it. And they literally cut at the last usable frame before everybody, everybody <laughs> horsed. And when I was watching Spinal Tap, one of the things I was, I was noticing was there are a lot of, of edits that come like that. At, right after you can't dust for vomit, right after... <laughs> This goes to 11 the second time. (laughs) There's that that instantaneous cut. And it both speaks to we know when to get out of a bit. And we know like that it's going to make you laugh in and of itself that that scene ends in in that split second. But it also kind of makes me want to believe that like the next frame is just everybody bursting into hysterics. 
and it most likely is. Mm-hmm. I mean, how, how can you not? I mean, like you said, the, 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 you can't dust for a bomb. It made me laugh just just now. <laughs> um, it makes me laugh when you say the, it. Well, the fact they don't break though is like like it was somebody else's vomit. That, that to me, I would probably lose it there. But. That is actually. I mean, that also is just one of my favorite Spinal Tap scenes because. It more than anything else in the entire movie that feels like they're coming up with it in the moment, and Michael McKean's face especially you you can feel him kind of like fighting down the urge to to either giggle or congratulate people like congratulate guest especially on his on his improv i we don't know as much about the the process of pop star um and I think it's probably safe to assume as, as Keith does that it is more planned out and more written but uh but that the discipline is is there um and you know you talked about it earlier about n- knowing how far to go into one of the songs before saying that's enough you know just uh you know you, you have to be concise and you have to know when something is going to be funny and when it's going to stop being funny and, and cut maybe a beat before, you know, it's just, and, and just having a sense of the overall pace of the thing. And, and, and Popstar to me is almost particularly perilous in that regard because uh, it feels so random. A lot of the jokes do kind of come out of the blue and uh, a lot of that can just feel like fat you want to cut away. And uh, the, f- the film does impose a certain amount of discipline on that process. And you can feel it and it makes the film tighter and funnier. It is interesting how the editing changes towards the end of Popstar as you get into the business with with them up, like approaching their old bandmate out on the farm. That was the point where I started getting worried that the film was going to kind of descend into, into bathos because it slows down. The jokes stop coming as quickly. You start like dealing with authentic emotions, but like even that is, as you say, it's pretty economical. It's Mm -hmm. here is what the plot requires. We're going to get in and out as quickly as possible without losing the moment, without making the moment so quick that it becomes insincere. Like that in and of itself is a really difficult balancing act. And it's one that Judd Apatow films in particular, I think, have trouble with. So I was pretty impressed with that. Talking about that sequence at the farm and what follows that kind of uh, segues nicely into your topic, which is something these two movies share, which is the comeback arc. I just thought it was an interesting thing that both of these films are essentially about people who start, in theory, as huge success stories at the top of their game and then are undercut very sharply. I mean, this is, it's kind of a behind the music story. It's about how people who have built up a certain amount of arrogance because they believe they're at the top of the world are laid low enough that we can sympathize with them, are laid low enough that they become accessible. And we laugh at them. We laugh at their humiliation because they're arrogant. But we also laugh at, you know, they're flailing at their at their suffering, honestly. I mean, one of the funniest moments in Popstar for me is when Connor for real is looking <laughs> looking at his negative four out of ten pitchfork review <laughs> and the fact that Rolling Stone gave him a poop emoji out of four stars. These characters, if what what makes them funny is that they're so arrogant and they're so sure of themselves. What makes them human is that they fail. And then what makes the story fun is they get to kind of pick it up back at the end. And it, it's interesting to me that with Spinal Tap, the comeback at the end is it's almost it's just a fait accompli it's just kind of a oh and and by the way we're really successful someplace else so it's 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 almost tacked on to the end to give you uh, an up arc 
but it's still there to make this comedy a happy story instead of a tragic one. With Popstar, it's much more of a, a big, roaring, joyous pop comeback. But in both cases, you just you have this you have this movie that follows the exact same roller coaster arc throughout to very similar purposes. I think. Yeah, both are kind of both end up hailing the virtues of teamwork and mm-hmm. friendship, and how the whole is is uh, more than the sum of uh, the parts. Or is that right? Sure. Yeah. Uh, how the whole is more than the sum of its parts that, that Connor uh, should not be writing his own songs for example um and uh or making his own beats or stealing other people's work yeah yeah no he shouldn't be doing any of those things both films are also about the fickleness of fame you know not the fickleness of the fans necessarily but just the the fact that you cannot rely on fame and fame to some degree feeds on itself but you still can't rely on it I think it's interesting to note that like Spinal Tap were friends from childhood and the Style Boys were friends from childhood. <laughs> you know, you know, Popstar has that that bit about all the different people Connor has on his payroll and he has the one guy <laughs> to, you know, kick him in the nuts to keep him humble or whatever. But there but you know, with the, the way both of these, you know, stories kind of resolve, there is sort of an idea of like going back to your roots or going back to, you know, the the thing that made you uh, more so with Popstar than with Spinal Tap. Yeah, I mean, I think in music stories particularly there's a a certain feeling that authenticity is everything Mm -hmm. i mean we can also go back to uh, la confidential and the whole cut versus uncut thing (laughs) on that but i mean both of these films are about characters that have become in a way uh, you know phony and caught up in the fame you have to remember that it's about the music man (laughs) and with that awesome segue i'm gonna bring up my topic which is music man um, Wait, we're talking about the music man? We're talking about... No. <laughs> I haven't seen that film in years. I'm not prepared for this. 76 trombones. Uh, all right. <laughs> Besides a mockumentary format, the strongest link between Popstar and Spinal Tap is the way the two films use original comedic music throughout. But where the music of Spinal Tap, the fictional band, was first introduced to the world via the film, The Lonely Island had an established musical persona going into Popstar. At this point, Spinal Tap songs like Tonight I'm Gonna Rock You Tonight and Big Bottom are almost as well known as the film that spawned them. By 1984, they served as the debut, such as it is, of England's loudest band and are part of the foundation of the band's mythology. By contrast, The Lonely Island has been well known for its song parodies since at least Lazy Sunday debuted on SNL in 2005, and they released three full-length albums prior to Popstar. The humor, tone, and production value of the music and pop stars heavily informed by what The Lonely Island has produced before, perhaps most notably in the climactic guest appearance by Michael Bolton, who performed on one of the trio's biggest hits, Jack Sparrow. So I guess what I'm trying to get at here is that where the music in This is Spinal Tap feels like an extension of the film, pop star feels more like an extension of The Lonely Island's music. Uh, does that ring true to you guys at all, or should we just spend the segment kind of naming our favorite songs from the films? Because <laughs> I'm cool with that too. Can we do both? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I mean, no. I, I think you're right. I think that I think that this is very much an extension of maybe not where they started musically with with Lazy Sunday or where they where they became huge viral hits with Lazy Sunday, but where they've ended up with Jack Sparrow and Yolo and. I just had sex and I'm on a boat, like all of these big chest thump and rap anthems that are about like conspicuous consumption and outsized lifestyle and all of the things that so much rap is about. They've just kind of extended that into the characters themselves and it works really well. Also, much like Spinal Tap, it, it works because it's so convincing. I mean, these these are really catchy songs. They're absurd. They're all, especially Akiva Schaefer, really great rappers. You know, yeah, it's, really. it's, 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 I don't think it would work if it was just 
goofy people with no flow. I mean, they 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 know what they're doing and they do it very well. Just on on the basic level, the the free associative uh, allusions uh, that and, and references are are all. It's just really fun to hear. Yeah, I think the Lonely Island are really talented musicians. I mean, we talked in the first half about the actors who play Spinal Tap, like you know, having some real musical chops and. That is certainly the case here, too. Like the production on these songs, for the most part, is indistinguishable from a lot of what's on pop radio. And, you know, their lyrics are silly and stupid and occasionally don't rhyme. But they're also like really smart about language Mm -hmm. uh, in in, in some ways. Like I um, brought this up on Twitter to Scott, but the song I'm So Humble, which is which I actually like more than Finest Girl. But like the opening lines of that are bar none i am the most humblest number one at the top of the humble list and that is just such brilliant terrible wordplay that like it blows my mind every time i hear it like i i love that line and they have a lot of little just turns of phrase like that that are they're great yeah Yeah. well i mean that that reminds me too of a big bottom uh, and one of the things i like about that song is that there are two different occasions where they rhyme day with day yeah <laughs> uh, which is this really, you know again really clever bad songwriting but i think what uh, yeah one of the things that i've always really liked about lonely island is the fact that they have these very silly ridiculous self-deprecating lyrics but in order to bring those lyrics across they really do have to hit go hard you mm-hmm. know i mean like in, in, in they're convinced that you know they're vocally and musically, a tremendously convincing, you know, and it also gives makes the songs, you know, easy to listen to mm-hmm. more than once. And they pick their collaborators well. They do. They do have that pitbullish quality from <laughs> collaborators. See, I can make reference to pitbull. Um, you can make lots of references if we talk about your topic next. Oh, oh my gosh! Before How about we, that? Before we, oh no! Before oh, you're not gonna do, my you're segue, gonna... my beautiful segue. I'm sorry, I am. I am busting your flow. <laughs> All right, but I just I have to say, like so much you're you're talking about them extending their music. So much of their music is about that dynamic of of big chest beating braggadocio and undercutting themselves and. Again, that that plays out through the characters and everything they do with the characters in the story. But it also just it plays out in the songs here. I mean, Jack Sparrow is one of my favorite all time things, and it's all about the the back and forth conflict between chest thumping rap and something ridiculous and yeah. undercutting. And like, I'm so humble works for you. I'm I'm still stuck on the Bin Laden song, which it's is, good. I like it a lot, but specifically <laughs> includes you know it's about having hot sex with a freak but it it undercuts it with lines like i couldn't track the metaphor and i still don't see the appeal but he went ahead and had sex and it was great but he's still got to take it back and they do the same thing and i just had sex i think she was a racist it still counts <laughs> so it, that's just a dynamic i see in their music over and over and over and for me it still hasn't gotten old yeah because so much of the culture is about like that big oversized uh, you know, penis waving, basically. and <laughs> Or just penis dragging along a window. <laughs> slowly dragging up a window before signing it. Uh, so you had some sort of segue. <laughs> yeah, now that you've totally trashed my segue, Scott, talk about pop culture. <laughs> <laughs> segue, pop culture, colon. Um, so- wow, I have just really undercut your, your chest thumping segue here. <laughs> no, okay. Uh, that's Still all right. In, in, in true Lonely Island fashion. See, that's pretty good, right? Yeah. That's bringing it in for a landing. Um, <laughs> so uh, one of the things that fascinates me about movies like Popstar 
is what they tell us now and down the road about what the music scene was like at a particular time. Uh, we saw that a little bit in This is Spinal Tap, which references a specific strain of pop pomposity, but also the structure of the business at the time, the label parties, the venues, the store signings, the record release and touring strategies, etc. I often think about the movie uh, Josie and the Pussycats, which I think we, <laughs> m- m- uh, we admire, which is now 15 years old, by the way, <laughs> and how much... MTV's Times Square location was the epicenter for pop music at that time with Total Request Live and Carson Daly being, you know, the primary engine uh, for pop success. And that model now is just completely obliterated. And uh, we have Popstar, a movie that exists because The Lonely Island took off on SNL and YouTube as a viral phenomenon uh, that nobody had to pay to see or hear, uh, which may explain why the film failed at the box office. That was, a, that was an interesting theory that someone brought up, like, We've seen the Lonely Island videos for free. Uh, why am I going to pay to see them in a movie? Uh, I don't know. Anyway, uh, but watching the film too, I think we get a sense of how pop phenomena happens in 2016, how buzz can build around someone and fade just as quickly, how childhood nostalgia can bring back long defunct bands like the Style Boys from the Dead, and how specific tools of self-promotion uh, that are exploded by musicians now, like, uh, you know, and the narcissism that goes along with that. You know, you often hear pop stars talking about using social media to, quote-unquote, you know, speak directly to fans, uh, but they roar themselves at the same time. Uh, in the movie, uh, a pop star sort of makes fun of that strain of pop star vanity that, that wouldn't have been possible, you know, five or ten or even like five years they ago. They want to bring on an opening act. What? We have an opening act. Owen DJs. Hey, I'm always saying Style Boys could be the opener. No, man. Will you stop with that? Dude, people keep blowing up my Twitter about us doing Donkey Roll. Oh, they're blowing up your Twitter? Yeah. How many followers do you have, Owen? Like 500,000. Okay, well, I got... 20 million, and no one's asking me to do that. (laughs) Some of those are probably bots. Yeah, there's a lot of really specific to 2016 or thereabouts in this movie. And I I, I think this movie will age well, but it will always be an artifact. Which is great. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. There's absolutely nothing wrong with it. That's a feature. But I, you know, talking about specifics, I I love the line of watch for the new single. We're surprised releasing it next Thursday at 4. And the whole thing with Jimmy Fallon and like them like surprise reuniting on the Tonight Show to do the donkey roll because like that is what Jimmy Fallon does like that he bring, he brings the Save by the Bell cast on you, you know like it's just so spot on and it's something that was obviously facilitated by the relationship these guys have with Jimmy Fallon and in another also th- Fallon like choosing to participate like oh, him yeah. him specifically engineering that so that he can do the donkey roll with those guys yeah which you know is something Usher fantasizes about but can't have it's the such a Fallon thing. Another detail I really liked in the movie uh, was the parody of the U2 album that all of us owned <laughs> for right. uh, without wanting oh. to. <laughs> uh, so uh, in, in Popstar, uh, he releases uh, his record through an appliance <laughs> company. <laughs> so every time you use your refrigerator, your toaster, <laughs> you've got songs from uh, uh, the, the new Connor For Real album, uh, which I thought was great. And, and, and really, the reaction is not that more extreme and pop star than it was in real life to U2. People really, really hated having a free uh, U2 album. 
I, I never got that, but that's a whole different. <laughs> that's that a, whole different. a whole different conversation. Well, plus you with that, you get the great visual gag of his album release being them like opening a refrigerator <laughs> and a stove and the music coming out, or, like that being his pr- big premiere. It's just, it's. I liked Maya Rudolph was uh, way up there on the list of uh, good cameos. Mm-hmm. And then at Deborah. the end, Deborah, why is she here? Why is she here? I also <laughs> really like Jim Cusack. I was kind of if, if uh, there are deleted scenes out there, I, I would I would hope there's some more of uh, Joan Cusack as uh, Connor's deeply irresponsible mother. Yeah, there's a lot of blink and you'll miss some cameos. Like Will Forte popping up uh, playing bagpipes at his turtle's funeral. Like he didn't even have a line. It was like, it was literally a two second shot of Will Forte playing the bagpipes, you know? Um, I didn't recognize Weird Al either. I did. That was a nice little nod. Like you, you, yeah. you, you have to give a tip of the hat to Weird Al if you're a, a music parodist. When we're talking about all of the stars that show up and, and get name checked during this, though, I have to ask, does it make anybody else a little uncomfortable that these are a bunch of white rappers and like most of the people they bring on to talk about how inspirational and important the, this fake band was are famous black rappers. Oh, I think that's entirely intentional. Oh, of course it's intentional. It still made me uncomfortable. Oh, it didn't make me uncomfortable. It it tracks also, you know, if if these are kind of Beastie Boys surrogates in a way, these people would show up for for the Beastie Boys. Would they? Questlove? Oh, yeah. Beastie Boys? Yeah. Everyone loves the Beastie Boys. The fact that, like, you have hip-hop legends, you know, commenting on this, like, heightens the absurdity of them loving this terrible white boy rap group, like, to the extent where it is a joke like it's not like you have t-pain on there or something you know extolling the virgins of the stop boys you have nas and you have the wu-tang clan you know (laughs) (laughs) uh, like that that is very specifically about a a specific kind of legitimacy yeah well and also again it gets to this question this business of nostalgia too i mean maybe Mm. maybe style boys were not respected at all in the time at the time but but when you get far enough down the road you know, it gets associated right. with people's childhoods and suddenly this crappy thing that that was disrespected at the time becomes a classic. I just think the racial dynamics in this movie are interesting because you've got so much of the plot arc uh, around Chris Red as Hunter the Hungry kind of coming in and, and picking up the authenticity and the fandom that Connor for Real is, is rapidly shedding. I mean, one of the things we haven't really touched on in, in terms of like the pop culture and how this film fits into the now is Connor's media social media presence and how much he overshares and how much he lives for instant feedback and his fame and his infamy online. But then you have this other like young up-and-comer that's clearly becoming more popular than him. And so much of that feels like it's about authenticity. Authenticity and the approval of Tim Meadows, <laughs> which that in and of itself also becomes a really interesting dynamic. This is the first film I've seen in a while that passes the DuVernay test that has two black characters talking to each other about something that has nothing to do with a white person. And that moment for me, I, I, I just I thought that was a really interesting moment where those two characters are allowed to have their own story and are allowed to be like their own thing that has nothing to do with like the central thrust of this film. This isn't address the racial component of the film, but it does one significant contrast between Hunter and Connor is uh, the difference between, you know, an upcoming artist who is connected with, you know, what is real and what is happening now and and an artist Connor who is completely isolated and you know in his bubble of 23 personal assistants and in social media and i mean the film is very clever about 
um, parroting um, a, a very specific type of 21st century pop insularity, I guess, in the way he lives and the people that he has around him and all the all this affirmation that he gets from his fans, the affirmation that he gets from the people he pays to be his yes men. You know, there's, uh, there's a lot of good jokes that come out of that, but it's also what triggers his fall, too, because he doesn't look at himself critically and connect with what it is that people find exciting and new and dynamic and that's really going to have you know, a resonance with listeners. He's just way too, too much in his own uh, bubble. And then he finds that resonance with listeners with a song that is essentially Insane Clown Posse's Miracles. <laughs> I mean, can we just talk about how incredibly bat poop bizarre that song is? <laughs> Incredible Thoughts. Yes, incredible thoughts. <laughs> it, it really is miracles. I mean, all, yeah. all that's missing is, a, think about is that. praise true. for magnets. Oh, praise magnets. All <laughs> right. How do they work? Well, I think that's as good a place to leave it as any. This is Spinal Tap is widely available on DVD and Blu-ray in a variety of special editions and apparently some weird Chinese bootleg VHS <laughs> that's four and a half hours long. Popstar is currently in theaters, but based on its lukewarm theatrical performance thus far, it's more likely to find its cult audience when it's released on home video down the road. We'll be right back with our usual recommendation segment, Your Next Picture Show. Finally, it's time to catch each other up on films or film-related items we've seen in the interim since our last podcast. We call it Your Next Picture Show in the hopes that it'll put some interesting choices on your radar. Keith, you want to kick us off? I'll start off with a movie which I, I didn't know anything about, and I watched it. It's like I'm still not quite sure what kind of movie I just watched, but it's quite good. Uh, it's a film called The Fits. It's the first narrative feature by a director named Anna Rose Homer, and it was filmed um, in Cincinnati. It follows a kind of tomboy named Tony who's 11 years old, trained to be a boxer who kind of changes her mind and wants to try out for a dance troupe and it's she's an outsider there's it's a re, there's there's virtually no dialogue and especially from the lead character in the, in the first uh, stretch of this film and, and it kind of this nice portrait of, of pre-adolescent isolation and then it kind of takes a turn as 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 the various girls in her troupe kind of fall prey to this mysterious uh, ailment that causes them to cause seizures and it feels like it's turning into a horror movie and and not to spoil anything it, it doesn't turn into a horror movie it kind of loops back around to being what it always was uh, uh, but in a really interesting and, and oblique and mysterious way, and it's it's beautifully shot, quite stylishly shot, with it with a great uh, lead performance from from uh, my favorite, well certainly my favorite child actor of the year, but also my favorite actor name of the year, which is Royalty Hightower. Uh, <laughs> that is the name of a of a future star. So it's it's kind of slowly rolling out, but very much worth seeking out, and it won't take up much of your time either. It's less, it's about I think seventy two minutes long, or, or mm-hmm. yeah, it's a, it's a short feature, but uh, but uh, it's a full meal. I like it. Yeah, agreed. Coast signed um i wrote about that one for the verge and it was for me it's it's very much like a dance piece because so much of the movie is about her physicality um both in training and in in dancing and in practicing alone but also just where she stands in proximity to other people you know whether she makes herself part of a group or stands outside it how groups of how groups change when she approaches them, how she physically interacts with boys, with girls, with different kind of people. There's so much about physicality in this movie and it's so refreshing. I, I'm with you on kind of having that feel of, I'm not entirely sure what kind of movie I just watched, but it, it's such a good feeling, you know? It's such a good feeling to see something that not only doesn't slot into any really like neat little holes, but kind of gives you like a refreshing look on on, on film, really, on the, the kind of stories the film can tell. 
Scott, you got a recommendation for us? I do. I wanted to recommend a film called De Palma. Um, I bow to no one in my love of Brian De Palma, so I was already in the bag for Noah Baumbach and Jake Paltrow's documentary about him, if only because De Palma could always use uh, some more fans slash apologists, and this is a chance uh, to make the case for him on a large scale. Uh, I will confess, however, to be mildly disappointed that De Palma is as conventional a film as its subjects' uh, films are not. Uh, This is basically a solid DVD extra with De Palma as the only talking head uh, running through each of his films one by one. That said, uh, De Palma himself tells some very funny stories, and the film is just loaded with fantastic insight about what it was like to be an artist in the Hollywood of the 70s and the Hollywood of the 21st century, about the eye of the director and what what the role of a good director is, and also about how art passes through the culture. Um, I left the film wanting to write at least three or four separate uh essays about it so uh it's a real it's it's uh something to talk about i mean really stuff like how special effects people who who do special effects in movies and how you hand movies over to them really come up with visual all these visual cliches uh that that take it away from the director and make make some make generic bad art uh i thought that part of it was absolutely fascinating um so de palma is uh yeah it should be rolling out pretty pretty good it thrills me that it is getting any kind of theatrical release at all and a24 is putting it out and uh, i think if you're a de palma uh fan especially you should uh it's essential viewing yeah i think if you're a fan already um you know just walking through film by film with de palma as your guide is 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 a, is a treat and some of the stories are fantastic i um particularly enjoyed um the story of uh, how Sean Penn would get Michael J. Fox riled up on the, on the set of, of uh, Casualties of War, in which they played antagonists, and and kind of one scene where his character is required to, to whisper insults uh, to the other. He whispers the word uh, TV actor uh, to him, <laughs> which, yeah, it's a good one. What about you, Genevieve? Uh, well, I caught up with a film from last year that kind of uh, I, I always meant to catch up with, and now that it is on Netflix streaming, it was easy to do so. Um, and that is the 2015 Sundance Darling Dope, directed by Rick Famuyiwa. I'm probably butchering that. I'm sorry. I feel like when this movie came out and it was, you know, everyone's kind of buzzing about it. All I really processed about it is that it was about a group of 90s obsessed nerds living in present day Inglewood. And I just kind of assumed it was a sort of fish out of water coming of age story. So when I finally watched it, I was not prepared for what it actually is, which is a fish out of water drug caper story. Uh, This movie is actually kind of packed with incident and it moves really well through its narrative with a lot of flair and not nearly as much like 90s kid pandering as I was expecting based on the reviews I'd read. Famuyiwa's direction is really dynamic, occasionally bordering on a little self-consciously flashy, but it's a really engaging film to watch, and the three lead actors are really great. Um, I guess uh, Famuyiwa was just announced as the director of the upcoming movie about The Flash, and based on the kind of kineticism he showed in Dope, I feel that feels like a really inspired match to me. So I guess I'm belatedly excited about Dope and prematurely excited about The Flash. Oh yeah, Famuyiwa was also just directed a con- Confirmation, which was the HBO movie. Did anybody besides me see that? Oh, I thought no one liked that one, though, right? It's the the Anita Hill thing, right? Yeah, it's the Anita Hill, Clarence Thomas thing. I... (laughs) I I was going to say, I liked it seems too strong. But no, I I did like it. I... 
I think that it's it does some really interesting. I wrote about it for The Verge. So again, uh, it, I don't really need to go into it in huge detail. You can find all that online. But it made me really interested in him as a director because it, it is so smart and careful about where it draws the line between the two characters and how it tells the story. And it really made me want to like loop back and see more of his stuff. And when I found out that it's all available on Netflix, that was a huge, uh, a huge bonus that I have not exploited properly. So now I will have to. Thank you. All right. Uh, so Tasha. Bring us home. What do you got for us? Uh, I've got a little movie called Twilight. What? I'm going to recommend to everybody because it's so good. This is the 1998 <laughs> oh. Twilight uh, directed <laughs> by Robert Ben. <laughs> Um, my after uh, the our uh, nice guys LA Confidential pairing, my husband and I went on like a little sub LA noir tear, um, and we finally watched Night Moves, for instance, uh, which was really really good. Uh, But one of the other things we watched was Twilight, which is um, much like Night Moves. Uh, It has Gene Hackman in it. It feels very aware of Night Moves in a lot of ways. It follows some of the same parallels. It's another L.A. noir movie. It's another kind of like rambling detective story about somebody trying to uh, trying to crack a case. Everybody is in this movie. Um, It stars Paul Newman, Susan Sarandon, Gene Hackman, Reese Witherspoon, Stockard Channing, James Gardner, Juan Carlo Esposito, Liv Schreiber, Marco Martindale, (laughs) Emmett Walsh, Jason Clarke. It's one of those movies where practically every small role that turns up on screen uh, is a, oh my gosh, it's that person moment. And people turn up in really, really interesting and, and fun characters. It's very low-key. Uh, Paul Newman plays a sort of detective who is definitely in the waning years of his life. And it's a like a slow-roll kind of mystery story um, that is not in any particular hurry to get there. It has kind of that Elmore Leonard-y feel of uh, like very, very colorful characters doing very, very low-level criminal stuff uh, that they're not always physically or emotionally equipped for. And I don't, I don't want to say anything more about the plot because it's so it's an unrequited love story. It's a requited love story. It's a murder mystery. And it's more L.A. noir. And it's just, it's a really surprising film in a lot of ways. Um, writ, co-written and directed by Robert Benton, who also did uh, Kramer versus Kramer and Still of the Night, Places in the Heart, uh, more unfortunately, The Human Stain. Um, <laughs> well, I mean, if I recall, I mean, the, the it was also, it was more touted as a follow-up to Benton and Newman's uh, nobody's fool, right? Uh, I was not aware of that, but yeah, that, that was their, that was their based on Richard Russo book, and mm-hmm. it's, it's co-written by Richard Russo. Yeah, Twilight's great. I, I'm I, one reason the, I I didn't see the more recent Twilight movie, um, so I don't have really an opinion about it, <laughs> uh, uh, one way or the other. Beyond it uh, uh, being kind of mad that it erased the title of a of a really good movie that not enough people have seen. Although I mean, Twilight as a as a title is generic enough that I, for me it's it's just good for a laugh. Uh, I, I appreciated that. <laughs> apparently, a bunch of people in my letterbox got a notification that I had rated a movie uh, called Twilight. <laughs> were horrified until they found out what it was. But yeah, Twilight. Who knew? All right. Uh, how can people see it? Is it? We watched it on DVD, but I mean, it's on all of the usual uh, pay to rent services: Amazon, Vudu, iTunes, YouTube, uh, Google Play. Uh, pretty much all of the all of the basics. It's pretty it's pretty available. It's pretty out there. All right. Well, next time I get the urge to watch Twilight again, maybe I'll watch that one instead. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I have seen the uh, Catherine Hardwick Twilight. You'd be doing yourself a favor with the Paul Newman Twilight. All right. I'll keep that in mind. Mm-hmm. 
And that's another episode of the next picture show in the books. Our next episodes come out June 28th and 30th. And our next pairing is a little out there, but hear us out. In 2003, the success of Pixar Animation's Finding Nemo gave director Andrew Stanton the freedom to make daring, experimental storytelling choices with Pixar's WALL-E, and to try his hand at epic fantasy blockbuster action with his live-action debut, John Carter. Here at the Next Picture Show podcast, we have a lot of appreciation for John Carter, which we covered in episodes 13 and 14, but it was a notorious commercial flop. That may explain why Stanton has migrated back to the headwaters of his birthplace with Finding Dory, a Finding Nemo sequel. You may remember the memory-impaired sidekick Dory, a blue tang voiced by Ellen DeGeneres. In Finding Dory, her childhood starts coming back to her. She realizes she's lost her family, and she goes on a quest to find them. That quest is a lot like the one at the center of Finding Nemo. It's also remarkably similar to the quest Guy Pierce's protagonist, Leonard, undergoes in another film about mystery and memory. Christopher Nolan's breakout memento about a man working to find his wife's murderer, even though he suffers from a crippling form of memory impairment. Memento and Finding Dory are two very different films. One animated, one live action, one kid accessible, one adults only. But they're both about coping with loss and a handicap, about unfolding a mystery through discovery, and about the nature of memory and how it defines our identities. We'll be delving into all sorts of ways to compare Guy Pierce and a little blue animated fish in the next episodes. In the meantime, we'd love to hear your feedback on this week's discussion of This is Spinal Tap, Pop Star, and anything else film-related. We want to include your thoughts on future episodes of the show. You can leave a short voicemail at 773-234-9730 or email us at comments at nextpictureshow.net. Finally, before closing out this week's episode, where can we find everyone these days? Keith? You can find me at uprocks.com, where I'm editorial director of film and television, and on Twitter at kfips3000. And I was also on the most recent episode of a podcast called Alcoholywood, talking about uh, John Carpenter's In the Mouth of Madness, which is a, a, a late Carpenter favorite of mine. So it's a pleasure to talk about it. Scott? Uh, you can find me on Twitter at, at Scott underscore Tobias, and you can find my work at NPR, Variety, New York Times, Washington Post, uh, Rolling Stone, Vulture and Oscilloscope's musings. I should also say that I was uh, a talking head in the in the Vice Land, uh, Vice Guide to Film, uh, Cohen Brothers episode. So maybe you can seek that out as Where well. You, you overshadowed uh, George Clooney. I understand. Yeah, yeah, charisma just burned right through the screen. I think so. I think so. I think I, I probably have probably more screen time than George Clooney, which is kind of weird. Uh, and it, it, I would say counterintuitive would be the word <laughs> I would use for that. Um, yeah, I, I think they cut together my best stuff so i encourage people to check it out yeah definitely seek that out and tasha i'm the film critic over at theverge.com you can find my writing there you can find me on twitter at tasha robinson and i was on the most recent episode of cut print films newsreel podcast talking about a piece i wrote for verge about whether the word unfilmable still means anything anymore in relationship to books and movies and i'm on twitter at genevieve kosky and i was on the most recent episode of this podcast (laughs) (laughs) you can stay up Updated on the Next Picture Show via Twitter at Next Picture Pod, via Facebook at Facebook.com slash Next Picture Show, or by visiting NextPictureShow.net. And if you haven't already, please subscribe to the show on iTunes. And while you're there, think about rating and reviewing us. Every thumbs up helps us find new listeners and keep the show going. Thanks to Colin, the Animal Griffith, for his assistance producing the show. And thanks to Delmark Records for providing recording space at their home base, Riverside Studios. The Next Picture Show is proud to be a part of the film spotting family of podcasts and the Panoply Network. Please tune in next time.
Fishes off of a cliff in Scotland A child bites an apple but the core is rotten TV is free, but what is the cost? We had GPS and yet we're still lost A carrot in the desert, a camel in the garden A man with giant ears, begging your pardon What if a garbage man was actually smart? A common misconception that we're tearing apart Into a dog, dog food is just food Into a sock, a mansion's just a big shoe Unlimited floss. These are just a few of our incredible thoughts.